Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Part two of our two-part Valentine's Day special on the Twilight Saga. Or Team Edward, Team Jacob, Team Discourse. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to your special, uh, loving, extra nice episode, uh, Valentine's Day bonus super episode. There we go. There's tons of adjectives for you of Horror <laughs> Vanguard. Uh, this is part two of our conversation with uh, Mexi and Leslie from Mad Blunder. How are both of you doing? Excellent. Glad to doing be here. Doing good. Same here. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on. If you uh, haven't yet heard, uh, part one of the show has come out on Vegan Vanguard, so go over there and check it out. Um, if the two of you would really quick just like to plug all of your amazing places and ways our listeners can support you. I have a YouTube channel, Mexi, M-E-X-I-E, and a podcast, uh, The Vegan Vanguard, which you should listen to part one on. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at MexiYT. And uh, Vegan Vanguard, I believe it's just vegan underscore Vanguard on Twitter. Um, and veganvanguardpodcast.com is our uh, website. And uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Just, yeah, you can, you can just find me. You can just, we'll link it below. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. How about you, Leslie? Uh, yeah, I have a YouTube chan uh, channel called Mad Blender. And my uh, Twitter is at mad blender i think it's just mad blender yeah obviously obviously we're gonna have links to um to leslie and mexi's uh work in the show notes um mexi of course has been on our episode where we talked about raw um i really really love um leslie your video about capitalist realism um which is maybe uh, it's one of my favorite things i've seen on youtube in a long time oh, thank you so much um, so thank you thank you both of you so much for for coming on um and without further ado because because this is the the, the valentine's uh love for the twilight saga um and we are we are halfway through our conversation um should we just let's let's just uh, dive right in um so where were we up to where do we want to start with this half of 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 our uh, chat so, so I do, I do have a uh, part two to my introduction to the Twilight series. If you would care to hear it, mm. yeah, yes, of course, absolutely. But it's Valentine's Day. Love is in the air. I'm feeling, I'm feeling the reason for the season. So, what can we say about the struggle for a better world that we cannot also say of love? As Ursula K. Le Guin wrote, "Love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made like bread, remade all the time, and made new." Our moments, our theories, our actions are never still. They must be remade and made new, lest they ossify into that which we oppose. We yearn for this fluid experience of liberation like the lovers in Dracula pined for each other. I'm longing to be with you and by the sea, where we can walk together and freely build our castles in the air. How is it that we can reach our castles in the air? How is it that we can begin to build something so grand with those we share a bond far greater? I won't pretend to know the way. But I do know the first step. We must cut loose the bowline if we wish to fly free. For it is now as it has always been. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Welcome to two, part two of our two-part episode on Twilight. Wow. That was awesome. <laughs> that was so good. That was so good. That was, that was, 
that was so good. That was dangerously good. <laughs> I love that you <laughs> no. came up with two different summaries, and they're both amazing. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Like single tear running down my face. I was like, "Wow, Ursula, <laughs> Ursula Le Guin said that man. That's fire." Right. <clears throat> you got, you got, you got to tie your Ursula Le Guin into your Twilight franchise. Obviously. I mean, it just makes sense, right? Yeah. I, I, I know, I know. Ash is trying to persuade me of the of his point of view because he's pulling out Ursula Le Guin, Dracula, and the Communist Manifesto. This is like my kryptonite. What are you doing? What are you doing to me? You're going to leave this conversation like just the biggest uh, Twilight stand. <laughs> I, 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 could, I could just imagine like like the, the heavy flop sweat just rolling across your forehead as your hand hovers over the Buy Team Jacob t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I guess that's a good segue uh, into the episode proper because speaking of Team Jacob, uh, the Twilight films uh, do have uh, you know the, they intersect with the tensions between uh, indigenous people and settler colonialism, right? And and you know we we would be remiss in our duties talking about this text if we ignored those. Um, Maxi, I think um, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this uh, issue in particular. So if you wouldn't mind me throwing you under the Twilight bus. Alrighty. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a lot to dig into in terms of the representation of indigenous people in this film. Um well, I mean, it's it's clear that, you know, an indigenous person did not write this. <laughs> um, and I, it might be like even more clear in the books, because I remember when they're having their council meeting, um, Stephanie Meyer made sure to 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 note that, you know, I think it was Leah is standing there and, uh, you know, judiciously writing down everything that everyone is saying, like basically taking the minutes of the meeting. And I was just like, hmm, yes, <laughs> uh, a, a, a mainstay in, in indigenous tradition. I think I think there's a reading of it where you can look at kind of like settlers as vampires, right? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's it's quite interesting that they've developed these powers to fight off the vampires, but then they end up making this treaty with uh, certain ones that appear to, uh, you know, not overtly threaten their their way of life but i think it's it's when you think about kind of the the wealth differentials between the cullens and um the indigenous people in the film it's also i mean it's not talked about but i guess it's it's implied that the cullens are so rich because they've just been alive such a long time and so they've been able to amass all of this wealth. But, you know, obviously, if you think about the tribe, like they're not wealthy whatsoever. And, um, you know, they've also been around like not necessarily these exact same people, but um, you would think that obviously if they've been around uh, a similar amount of time, uh, they could amass the same amount of wealth. But, um, you know, it, it's pretty obvious to me that it's kind of implied that like the Cullens are so wealthy because they were able to profit in some way off of settler colonialism and then um, amass all this wealth and then now um, you like use that wealth 
to, I guess, buy stocks or, or play the stock market or things like that. There is, yeah, there's that, obviously, like the, the constant tension um, between the the Collins and the, the tribe. Um, it's interesting how they kind of end up being friends at the end anyway. Um, and yeah, I'm, I haven't really thought too much on that but those are just kind of my thoughts about the obvious ways in which the Collins probably have exploited settler colonialism to get their wealth and now they're in this kind of like uneasy alliance with these indigenous people that they've obviously exploited yeah yeah I think um you pointed out one of the key things here and that's like in um, I'm not sure if this like I, I have a little bit of blur between what was in the book and what was in the movies, but I'm not sure if this made it to the films. But I know in the books we learn that one of the reasons that, or one of the ways in which the Cullens sustain their wealth is through Alice's ability to see the future, and they 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 use that to game the stock market, you know, which is is clever. Like that's a fun that's a fun twist uh, as far as story goes. But like the existence of the stock market is predicated on on like a global colonialist uh, empire of capitalism, right? And that that kind of directly implicates them and then like i think like the the tensions with the quilutes is one of like like this is like the worst stuff in the franchise for me because it's it's like the most like like i get charlie does copaganda but like there's more nuance with charlie we can tease out certain things but i think like when it comes to the cullens and like like, you know, we get that flashback later on where, like, two vampires entirely decimated everyone in the Quileute culture besides a handful of people. And, and like, the, the implications are really clear about who the Cold Ones are and what they do. And, like, like um, you get all those, like, sneering lines where, like, when Jacob shows up and Edward's like, oh, I could smell you a mile away, yes. you know? And, and, like, all of these barely coded racist tensions that just drip from the Collins is just so awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, just to jump in, um, I think there was definitely like definitely racialized elements. There was a binary, like a binary put in place uh, between obviously the Collins and um, the Quileat tribe. The Collins sort of were, you know, represented as the epitome of whiteness, right? So the the epitome of civility, wealth, and education, and um, that's definitely played throughout. You know, they they love classical music, they love fine art, they travel, they play the stock market. They're super wealthy, and then you kind of have this um, uncivilized uh, portrayal of Jacob and the rest of the you know Quileute tribe is more primitive, like savage, more animalistic, and that is. Yeah, you know, like they're literally on, animals. Right. And they're shirtless the whole time. Like that's played on the, their bodies are very objectified. Um, and then, you know, with the Cullens, they're again, um, they're able to restrain themselves. They're, you know, more, you know, portrayed as more rational and more um, just, I don't know, high culture all around. Um, Carlisle is like. Uh, the epitome of self-restraint, right? That they don't, the Cullens, they don't drink, they don't drink human blood. And then, you know, the Quileutes are, you know, played off as um, they can't, they can't restrain themselves. They have these very, yeah, animalistic tendencies. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I just wanted to jump in and, and kind of relate that to like AFCO's work about animality and like animality and racism or like the construction of like the quote unquote savage are these colonial constructs. Yeah, that's obviously really um, played out in the film where uh, the kiluts are like literal animals and then treated like animals, like called dirty and smelly and, and all that stuff. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think I think the connection between their ability to essentially manipulate the stock market without risk um, and 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 uh, the, the kind of derogatory uh, and deeply kind of dismissive attitude towards uh, Jacob and the rest of the tribe. It, it, it's this very uh, paternalistic neoliberal uh, prejudice right you know it's it's not like it's not rendered in the explicit terms that it might have been uh a hundred years ago when edward was uh you know first turned into a vampire but it's still there's this kind of real like ugly streak in how in how that that relationship unfolds yeah and i think um i'm really glad you pointed out the neoliberalism of it all because like the cullens i i think are like one of like just ultra liberal you know, because they're always positioning themselves, uh, kind of like what Maxi was saying, as being above the worst parts of their own culture. You know, it, it reminds me of that scene from Get Out, where the one white guy is like, "I would have voted for Barack Obama a third time if I could have," <laughs> and like, I could absolutely see Carlisle saying that. You know, like, like that's a kind of attitude that they have as a family, and I think that one of the interesting ways this manifests is that like, you know, we were talking about um, in the uh, vegan Vanguard half of the episode, we were talking about masculinity and how the different characters, the different men in the text um, portray like different aspects and relationships to matriar- <laughs> masculinity, uh, heteronormativity, the patriarchy. And like Jacob, Jacob is wholly consumed by his animalistic alpha male, like anger and aggression and dominance you know, and then like uh, Edward, Edward gets to be like a little fancy lad above it all, and and more interested in like his masculinity as a historical and religious project, and not just some baser kind of thing. Yeah, and it goes it goes without saying that that like the po- positioning oneself as apolitical or above po- politics is a profoundly political move. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then you have the hyper neoliberal thing of, you know, them all being super close to Charlie and like kind of working with the cops. Like you have Sam and yeah, you have like the whole wolf pack. You have um what's that guy's name? Harry Clearwater like going out with uh Charlie all the time. I don't even think he's employed by the police force, but like when yeah. when Charlie had to go and search for the wolves uh you had harry coming out to like help him which is ridiculous on yeah. the face on the face of it right <laughs> but- <laughs> when, when when we see that like i i i immediately jump to like the really uncomfortable traditions of having like the the the, the horrible racist trope of like the native american police chief like dc comics uh powwow smith from the 50s or the Lone mm-hmm. Ranger or any of the or Johnny Depp's uh, portrayal in the Lone Ranger film, like all these like deeply racist uh, uh, depictions. And I think it, it's like it's not as blunt as that, but it is playing into that history when he goes to be like buddy cop with right. him. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's very obvious that an indigenous person played played no role in, in writing this 
uh, series or the scripts for this. (laughs) So, yeah, I think there's even like this happens multiple times throughout the the film. Um, Just even the way um, Jacob is is kind of brought into the Cullen's world, like even in in the, the final movie, you know, he starts off or yeah in the final movie the final two or whatever um you know he starts off hating them he's like timid to even enter their house and um while trying to protect bella like he esme brings him out food and he like kind of eats at outside and you kind of get the feeling as it gradually moves on he's like almost like he's being tamed he moves into the house esme's feeding him providing yeah, yeah. Him shelter like he's entering their world being civilized like it's it's a weird thing mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, that's a great point. And he he is he is the one that has to abandon all of the you know uh, uh, cultural values and all of the yes. heritage of his tribe right. in yeah. in order to enter that space, right? You know, yeah. he he effectively becomes a pet, right? And like you, we we get all these really uncomfortable scenes where like Bella is literally petting him. <laughs> yeah. And if you if you watch the behind the scenes footage. Um, I really love the special effects in Twilight. I think I think it's actually uh, just a definitely brilliant blend of CG and practical effects, mm. even though it comes off as really like Corman esque and, and silly. Mm. Yeah. But like <clears throat> those scenes, J- Jacob was wearing like a green morph suit, <laughs> and it's literally Edward, or it's literally Be- Bella like patting Jacob on the head, and they would later Aww. go put the wolf in with CG <laughs> oh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. It, com- it comes off deeply unsettling. Yeah. Yeah, I thought even the way. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, you know, vampires are the ur-capitalists. They are capitalists par excellence, right? Mm-hmm. So this this is this here, I think, is a metaphor that actually works, and it works as a kind of critique of the film within its own within the rules of its own world, you know. Um, and the the kind of the strange uh, relationship there. I, I I think that the use of the word taming is really important. And it is incredibly uh, important that the Cullens are asked to give up nothing to build a relationship uh, between those two peoples. But uh, Jacob is the one who's asked to, to kind of sacrifice. And it's a, it's a kind of cultural assimilation as well as economic power that's at play. Yeah, I think that just the last thing that, that I thought was um, you also get kind of this... Um, uh, portrayal or uh, of the you know white li- the white whiteness uh being kind of associated with godliness here like edward is constantly framed yeah. as some sort of like angel and god like the sparkly skin and he's you know Be- bella's perpetual savior um i mean i think we'll talk more about the you know more religious elements later on but i just yeah definitely kind of framed this you know whiteness as superior more spiritual and godly than the other yeah no i yeah i completely agree i I would completely agree and i think that's something we will absolutely have to pick up on when we come to talk about when we come to talk about the kind of religious um Mm, yeah symbolism and the religious ideas that are at work within within this this uh film series yeah um i think it's a good way to kind of bridge us into talking about religion and how it relates to this film i think i think it's time uh we've been i think collectively we're at we're at like uh maybe two hours of twilight episode at this point but i think i think it's time uh to uh hand the mic over to uh i guess i guess team team not twilight (laughs) 
to, 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 to the uh, to the one member team on our three v one game of Vampire Baseball. Uh, John, would you would you like to sing us a beautiful Valentine's Day song about Twilight and neoliberalism? Oh yeah! <laughs> Everyone, uh, grab uh, grab your special someone or someones. Light the light the fireplace. Pull them close. Get the wine. John John's about to go to town. Uh, I. I, I'm uh, yeah. I have a few thoughts about this. Um, <laughs> Imagine my shock uh, gif. Uh, this 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 is because Twilight is a film about it's it's neoliberal propaganda. It is it is the religious conservatism married to high capitalism and packaged in the form of romance. Um, it is the 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 really interesting thing about this film is that vampires uh, are always kind of conflicted religious figures historically um and what they represent is they represent a kind of transcendence they represent a kind of like uh beyond materialism and however you want to frame that it's often framed in the terms of catholicism for for kind of obvious reasons thanks to stoker's dracula but this on the other hand shows us a world that is completely empty of anything that approaches the transcendent what you have is you have a continuation of the present so like to become a vampire is not to like live beyond the limits of god themselves it's to just exist forever in the perfect now like this is a gothic capitalist realism uh this is like what, I mean, I mean, what does what does Bella get? She gets she gets her 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 sanctioned perfect life with uh, the incredibly hot, sparkly boy. She gets the beautiful <laughs> child. She gets the financial speculation without en- ever ever taking any risk, which is the economic and ideological lie of neoliberalism. And what you get is the perfect present extended forever. You don't get anything new. There is no futurity. The future has been completely abolished. All you have is a perfect eternity completely emptied of anything transcendent it is the apotheosis of the neoliberal imagination and this is why uh this is why we all love twilight because we've been we've been kind of uh inculcated we've been raised in this uh ideological framework that says that is what we should aspire to it is easier to imagine the end of the world stretching out forever in your beautiful house near his parents than it is to imagine the end of capitalism <laughs> i <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i just blacked out for a minute what happened <laughs> I, I completely agree. I, I, so I think I. I think you're bringing up a, a lot of a lot of really 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 good points. Um, I think, however, we can kind of we can we can strain the boundary a little bit there. You know, I, I think I think that you're absolutely right, and I think that this movie is fundamentally uh, weighed down. Right, there's an ankle weight on this film. And it's the same ankle weight that's on all of society. It's liberalism, it's racism, it's sexism, it's capitalism, it's settler colonialism. Like, like those, those things are dragging this uh, text down into the mire that they belong in. <laughs> uh, but uh, something I do find interesting, um, and I think uh, on, like, like, I think Mexi, we're on like month 7,000 of our extended Twilight discourse, <laughs> so I don't really remember... <laughs> Uh, where, when we were talking about Twilight in regards to like liberalism and visions for the future, but um, one of the things that struck me as being really interesting about this text, right, is that it, it is deeply, deeply neoliberal, 
but it's from a perspective of people who don't know what neoliberal is. It's it's from it's from kind of like the uh, you know the lumpen proletariat, if you'll use Marx's term. But like we have we have people who don't know the political system that they're under. They don't know the economic system that they're under. But they're still trying to have a vision of a better world. Um, that vision. Oh is my nece- God! No! No! <laughs> no! No! They totally are. They totally are. Hang on, because because what you are absolutely right that what Bella gets is is the neoliberal fantasy, but it is divorced from the mechanics of the neoliberal fantasy. Right? Bella's dream isn't to become like it's like I'm a vampire and I'm also the CEO of Raytheon and now we make a bunch of money uh, doing global police action. It's so good for the world. It's it's her her fundamental dream is like all all of these things that people want, right? She so she has housing security, right? Uh, she she has food security because she's a vampire, duh. And um, she also has um, uh, effectively Medicare for all and the fact that there's only a very there's like four things that can kill vampires in the Twilight universe and three of them are other vampires. And and we have we have that straining against the fact that the movie is held back. By the fact that it can't escape the neoliberal ideology that it's written under. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, fight me. Let's okay. go. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, no, no, no. Empire werewolf okay. battle action here. Um, okay, firstly, the neoliberal, like what she gets, precisely is the neoliberal fantasy, because even if you were the CEO of Raytheon doing police actions around the world, what you believe about yourself is that you're just a hardworking parent of two great kids. That's that's neoliberal ideology. It's and this film isn't unable to acknowledge things like racism or capitalism, settler colonialism. This film can't conceive of them. It completely uh, eliminates what we what uh, uh, we would call like uh, the, the material site of political struggle. Political struggle does not exist in this universe, in the universe of the Twilight Saga. And that's exactly what the neoliberal fantasy is. It's not about, it's not about um, a kind of false consciousness. It's about a society that's ordered in such a way that politi- uh, politics or political struggle or, or, or class struggle is simply unthinkable. And so I think, I think, it's exactly what she gets, and to and to call the Collins or or Bella anything approaching uh, the lumpen proletariat is is kind of baffling to me. These are these are incredibly. This is like the ideal form of bourgeois desire. Oh, I wasn't. Like, I wasn't is... calling the Collins the the lumpen proletariat. I'm sorry if I misspoke. I'm calling the text. Right, the, the text in and of itself is lumpen because it cannot envision the political conditions under which it's under. Well, no, I don't think it, I don't think it's, it's, I, I, I think, I think this is a, this is, this is a text which has no concept of the political, which is exactly what cultural products made under the neoliberal kind of totality in which we exist are supposed to do. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to have like, uh, Maxi, Leslie, <laughs> do you have, do you, do you have any, do you have any tech? Who, whose side are you on? <laughs> um, Go so ahead. I'm, you know, I'm a bit, I'm a bit on both. I'm a bit on both. So, um, <laughs> I agree that this film, like Stephanie Meyer obviously has no idea oh, about yeah. like capitalism, settler colonialism, like the police, nothing. Right. Um, and for her, yeah, she's she's probably writing out this kind of like neoliberal fantasy. Um, but yeah, what I what I think is interesting is that um, 
it's it's not really even presented as Bella's fantasy. It's like all of these nice, amazing things that other people would think are awesome are like presented and given to her, and she's like kind of indifferent to them, right? Like in in the book, it's like Edward buys her this like really nice car, and she's like. I don't even know what this car is and I don't even care. And you know what I mean? Um, like her desire is like mostly this like massively kind of like codependent, like I need this man or I will die kind of thing. Um, and she's willing to give up her entire family. She's willing to just like give up literally everything so that she can be with this person forever. Um, and then kind of like along the way right it's just it ends up being this um yeah this fantastic fantasy where it's like oh well looky here I, that <laughs> it just so happens that uh you know he's wealthy beyond all imagination and oh it just so happens that um you know they're they're fantastically fast and strong so they can build anything that they want and they can build you look they've built you this new house that you didn't have to do anything <laughs> for right um and and if you think about it, yeah, it's it's all of the things that she gets are like all of the things that people need to struggle for in in the yeah. real world, and even the fact that like she gets um, immortality. Like, there's a lot around like age in this in this film and about like aging and like the fear of aging and everything like that. And um, in the in the books, it's even more like. Uh, in the books, like she wasn't actually uh, portrayed as being very attractive at all. Um, but then once you become a vampire, you become like impossibly attractive. You never age. Um, yeah, you're you're kind of this just like perfect forever. Um, and I think that like it's really interesting and like I guess compelling because like under patriarchy, Right. Like, uh, you know, I'm I'm a woman in my 30s, like dealing with this um, morphia. Um, and uh, I mean, we all deal with that. We all deal with like uh, these these bad feelings and these pressures and things like that. And yeah, I mean, like I'm working class, like um, needing to <laughs> to work and, and not having security and, you know, having chronic illness and feeling like I have to just work through pain all the time because I have, I don't have that security. So, um, you know, yeah, it is, it is obviously, um, a, a, a text or it was written from a standpoint of somebody who, who can't conceive of, of like actual struggle and thinks that like those things are things that you can achieve, I guess, without doing anything. But I think that it resonates with so many people because like, it is a fantasy of like having security, having stability, yes, um, exactly. like having, um, you know, like uh, the vegan warrior princesses attack talked about this, about how, um, you know, a lot of women who get plastic surgery or women who, um, have eating disorders or who are really focused on, you know, trying to make themselves look good. Um, they're often portrayed as just being really vain. Right. But, um, it's like, no, like if you understand what it's like to, to be, um, to have society, like, you know, judge you constantly on the way that you look and like to have that, to have that be like your main value that you're supposed to give the world, right? Like people who are doing that, it's not like they're necessarily vain, right? It's like, they're trying to survive in these oppressive systems. And so like, this is something that, that would help them do that. Like it would help 
it would help them do that, right? Um, and I think that like a lot of the things that Be- Bella ends up getting are things kind of like that, that it's like, oh, wow, like, yeah, what a dream. Imagine not having to to, to struggle to get any of these things. Um, but I think that she's portrayed as being like largely indifferent. It's not, it's not like she's sitting around dreaming of that. Like she's sitting around dreaming um, of this like transcendent connection to like give her life meaning, which she doesn't feel like it has much meaning. And then this stuff is kind of around it. So anyway, I, I, I kind of agree with with both takes there in that, you know, clearly, yeah, Stephanie Meyer is not being political with this text and it, <laughs> it, it doesn't conceive of, of anything like that. But then there's also kind of like the weird politics of the Volturi in it, um, which oh, yeah. like you could read a certain way, but then um, in terms of just like the overall, yeah, I mean like Carlisle is portrayed as like this really, really good person. And we're just really never supposed to think about the fact that like, well, you're sitting on like all this wealth, you know, like you have enough money to actually buy an entire island for your wife off the <laughs> coast of Brazil or whatever, right? So so yeah, like it, it is, uh, I, I guess it's dangerous in the same way that like portraying Charlie as such a good guy is dangerous. And that like, for a lot of people, it's really easy to like, escape into this fantasy and not really have any any awareness that any kind of like security or stability or anything like it it can't be like an individual dream like that it has to be through collective struggle that we achieve any of that right i mean you guys said so much good stuff i i love it (laughs) i just you know yeah see bella as this you know socially awkward girl who feels out of place like she doesn't fit in she's financially strapped she's unable to attend a good college because you know she and her family don't have the cash i mean she is constantly finding herself in these precarious and dangerous situations right and i mean like being a woman um living in this like patriarchal capitalist society i can relate to her on every level and yeah becoming a vampire and becoming part of the cullen clan allows her this you know invincibility and and the opportunity to you know finally fend for herself and not have to worry about being assaulted it promises her the beauty accord like like Mexi talked i wanted to talk about this earlier i forgot i had um about the age thing um we have i know i do um have grown up with these outrageous standards for what um constitutes you know beauty and so um I think Bella, she's, you know, insecure about aging. She talks about it throughout the whole film. She's talking to Edward about, um, you know, if I don't change, like, you're going to leave me and I'm going to be ugly and I'm going to grow old and who's going to want me then? And um, so, you know, this new life promises to maintain her beauty, like, according to these very conventional consumer-driven beauty standards, um, you know, gives her the chance, you know, to, 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 as everybody, as all of you pointed out, kind of relieve her from this heavy financial burden with none of the work that it takes to get there. And so there's, this is just very conventional, not very really subversive or, you know, um, contract (laughs) i guess so yeah i I definitely agree with what you guys were saying um um i just wanted to i just wanted to pick up on what you were saying about aging um because i think we those those pressures and that 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 uh systemic uh like terror of, of aging is again something that kind of really i think really does feed back into 
the idea like we live in a in neoliberal capitalism is obsessed with youth right the 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 fear of growing old is exactly the same thing uh although expressed in different ways when peter thiel does young blood transfusions right those are it's it's why because capitalism is predicated on this idea of infinite expansion and our own contingency our own changeability our own finitude our own limited span of life tells us that an infinite expansion is not possible and therefore we have to kind of we have to kind of be told that 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 change that that finitude that that contingency that bodily fragility is something disgusting that we have to resist that we should be ashamed of that we should be embarrassed that we should be embarrassed about and those two things are intimately connected this desire to be to be young forever to exist in the perfect now is exactly the same on a kind of structural level as the belief that the stock market is always going to go up that infinite expansion on a planet of finite resources is a completely coherent position and that property prices are always going to rise i so so even on that level i still i think i think that that kind of very human fear of aging is tied back into the wider systemic forces that this film is completely unable to to, to kind of admit to existing mm-hmm. yeah I, I think that's a good point in terms of like peter thiel and all of that um because if your mo is basically to uh, amass as much wealth and quote-unquote power as possible if you are mortal then it's it it really makes it like well what's the point right it's like you can't take any of that you can't take any of that with you um yeah so it would only be really meaningful if you could exist forever to keep amassing all of that wealth otherwise it's absolutely pointless because you're not going to be alive to see it it doesn't matter you'll be dead you'll be gone right we, we talked about this with nicole cliff on our episode about a dark song that for the rich the only real problem is the fact that all of us will die yes uh, the only limit they run up against is is our is there is our own kind of like finitude mm-hmm. and i think and i think i think that's something that this the ending of these films particularly really underscores for me i, I totally I, I mean like I should go with that saying but i agree with what everybody's been saying about about twilight and i think um i would i would encapsulate my feelings about i guess like the political realities of twilight with kind of a riff on like Frederick Jameson and that and that like what we see in a lot of the fantasy of Twilight and other art that isn't politically engaged that still emerges from the neoliberal condition we live under are the seeds of a better world straining to take root on the barren hellscape that is the parking lot of late capitalism you know the the things in twilight will never will never root anywhere and they will wither and die you you still see some of these tensions right like it's still it's hard it's hard to ignore especially like as people on the left who are reading media it's it's hard to ignore that like like i think mexi you're really right like bella's kind of ambivalent about the wealth you know and and then that yeah. that, that kind of causes these other concerns to emerge right you know, like, you can read vampirism and the immortality as, like, the only fear of the ruling class and the elite, right? Them escaping death, the one thing they can never beat. But you can also read it as, like, bodily security for the working poor who are, like, literally ground to death by the realities of their working condition, mm-hmm. right? If you're a vampire, you don't have to punch that clock anymore. You don't have to work. You're free. Mm-hmm. 
I, well, I think that's part of why these movies had such mass mass appeal because you know it hits at these desires that so many people do have because they are being ground down by the system, right? And for people who don't otherwise have class consciousness, then yeah, it is. Uh, you know, even for people who do, I, I enjoyed watching these films, right? So. Um, <laughs> Right. It's it's for for everyone. It, it's kind of like, OK, maybe we don't necessarily want this like super Mormon, uh, you know, romantic saga uh, love triangle thing. But, you know, we do want um, you know, we do want to be beautiful. We do want to have a really long life. We do want to have stability. We do want to not have to worry about things. Like, I think that's like, that. I, I was listening to, uh, I think it was Adrian Marie Brown's podcast and they were saying like, what is freedom? And like, freedom is just like, literally not having to like, worry all the time. Like not having to be afraid of failure or of, of not being able to, to make your livelihood, right? Like that is freedom, right? Um, and I think that, uh, I think that's a big part of like the, the draw of, of these films. Yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree. And um I think I think my concern is that this sells a promise or a possibility that is actually it's it's a cure that's actually worse than the disease. Mm. You know, the 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 vision of you of the utopian future here is not is not a post-capitalist one. It's it's mm. it's capitalism pushed to its to it to what it wants to be. Um, so that I, although, but as I say, the kind of, as Ash pointed out, like the utopian impulses in all culture are kind of worth paying attention to. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it is, it is dangerous for people who don't really know that this isn't like a viable possibility at all. I think that, I think that we're starting to get into, uh, the tensions between, Left in left direction for utopia and and what capitalism would sell us as utopia, which is in and of itself the revolutionary condition. I I would posit right. It's the it's the two opposite views of what a better world looks like. Uh, one of them is correct, and the other one is the sham that's destroying the planet. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you safe to guess we're all on the same page for that one. <laughs> I uh, yeah. but, um, well speak for yourself. I'm very excited about visiting the Collins. Um, global warming utopia that they've set up in in new zealand to to escape the effects of climate change which they which they bought with their stock market money if if, if we if we really want to have some like vampire oriented ontological discourse the 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 collins exist in a preta-human state that for whom the conditions of global warming are fundamentally inconceivable from our position and their actions within that system are untethered from human experience and the anthropogenic nature of climate change. So the Cullens bear in and of themselves, uh, along with the rest of vampire kind, from what we're led to believe from the text, uh, near zero responsibility for the conditions of global warming. <sighs> they, they are, in effect, uh, victims on the level of nature and the animal, I would argue, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, is this is this the last Horror Vanguard episode? I don't know. Every episode is the last Horror Vanguard episode. <laughs> no, but but on on a more serious note, um, I, I I think I think we should we should talk about I, I I guess like the political mobility that that is within Twilight and the usefulness of this text, and I think a good backdrop for that discussion 
is is the final conflict, right? The the great battle between the Cullens and the Volturi. And we can really tease apart what these sides represent and really the incredibly sloppy political writing that's going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a, a like a liberal revolution, right? Because um, you have like, you know, the Cullens who are, yeah, just kind of like hyper liberals. You have the Volturi, which are like the oppressive monarchs, basically. And the Cullens are, all, are really depicted as kind of like this like scrappy group of of people who, you know, when they made it out of the the fight with the newborn army, you know, the Volturi were just like, wow, you know, uh, not that many clans would, I guess, be able to to fight off an attack of this magnitude. You know, they they're doing kind of like, you know, they're they're mobilizing their allies, right? So they know that they're they're going to be under attack, so they're going out and doing kind of like. Uh, the vanguard work of of uh, you know talking to people, trying to uh, raise their consciousness about Renesme, etc., and uh, and and get them on board. And they they're quite successful, you know. They're pretty good propagandists in that in that regard. The thing that's that's frustrating, yeah. You even have like the the uh, the two are they Russian? Yes, yes, the two old uh, <laughs> yeah. Soviet vampires. Yeah. Yes, um, and they've been waiting like millennia to overthrow the the Volturi as kind of the the you know the decision makers of the whole world, basically. So it's rather disappointing that um, they they pull back from that, right? Um, like, cause they're I know, right that's there. So sad. They're right there. It's they just like, have... crush them. Like, I know. Let them retreat for a second and then crush them. Yeah, like, they have the numbers. They have, um, you know, the the wolves, um, all of that. And it's like, okay, you're really going to let them walk away. And the reason that they're going to let them walk away is because they now believe that, like, okay, well, it's fine now because our family's safe, because Renesmee's safe for now. And if we fight them, we might, like, somebody might die. We don't want any of us to die. As long as, like, we're safe, like, let's just, let's just hold off, right? Um, and the Russians are so pissed right they're just like yes, i can't believe like they're, so. like they're right there like like why are we not attacking right um so yeah that that's like obviously a really disappointing thing um and it it kind of like echoes something uh earlier i think it's in the third the third movie where um they beat the newborn army but then there's that one young vampire who is obviously like you know scared and like it wasn't it's not her fault that any of this happened or whatever and the Volturi come and there's only three of them like there's only three Volturi at that point and there's the whole Cullen clan the Volturi are gonna kill this innocent young vampire and they're like no no like you know we'll we'll vouch for her like we'll we offer to take her in um for her whatever for her whatever yeah we just offer to take her in so that she she would stop attacking and uh they're basically just like no like that that wasn't yours to give kind of thing and they don't like you know they put they put up a tiny bit of a fight for that but they kind of step aside fairly easily to be like well i guess there's nothing we can do 
and they just like stand there while she gets killed, you know? And it's kind of like, okay, well, as long as we're good, like we're not going to risk our lives right now. Even though it's like, they probably could have taken those three, but then I guess it was like, it's like, okay, well then the rest of the Volturi are going to come out, come after us and destroy us. I'm not really sure, but um, there is this kind of like, almost revolution and then no i guess we're safe let's just pull back and not not go for it so <laughs> it's a bit disappointing yeah yeah i think um so so this is kind of like the my my takeaway lesson uh, uh is very much along these lines from like the f- political arc or the arc of the political conflict in twilight right um i think like it, it's, it's really important uh that we start with uh, that scene that's in the third movie where, where the Cullens are trying to like rehabilitate and save that, that uh, teenage girl who's been turned into a vampire and doesn't really know what's going on. And, and part of that is like, that's really the horror of the political reality we live under, right? Because how many times have we turned our blind eye, turned a blind eye to homelessness or racist violence or imperialism or any of the horrors that exist in our world because we just don't know what to do? You know, and we're, we feel powerless next to a larger system, and that's kind of what the Volturi represent there. So I think there's there's a little bit of a lesson we can tease out of that that it's this kind of like implicating ourselves in a in a larger system of oppression. But I think when we connect that into an arc that takes us into the next two movies with the fight with the Volturi, we can see how political movements get co-opted by by kind of like liberal parties right because like there's a there's a brief moment in time where the cullens are building a building a decentralized militia to destroy italian fascists and like mm-hmm. if that doesn't make me historically happy i don't know what does like, <laughs> they're 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 going all around the world finding people who are allied to their cause which includes like quote-unquote vegetarian vampires and non-quote-unquote vegetarian vampires right so it's it's like a diverse left coalition that's assembling to defeat these these monarch fascist types and, and in the end right the cullens who like i, I think this is the, this is where i would definitely take what i'm guessing we part of john's john's side here and that like this is where for me the cullens embody the worst impulses of neoliberalism right because like they they pull back on this battle because they're they're gonna lose their own right because jasper's gonna die because carlisle's gonna die right like that's that's part of their fear about engaging with this is that the cullen the cullen family unit is going to be disturbed right the violence will finally find a way back to them you know and then like so so they go for this like uneasy piece but it's really hard to imagine the rest of the volturi being like yeah okay you know, we'll never see you again yeah. because you have uh, some of the most powerful vampires that we want for our fascist mil- military force. You know, and now you're a clear threat. So it's hard to imagine that they're going to ignore them for the rest of forever. And this is truly the happy ending. It's coming out to be. It feels desperately unearned. And to me, that's like that's like the poisonous liberal twist at the end of Twilight. Is that like like it's it's the it's the um, who was it? Kendall Jenner who did the Pepsi commercial. It's the it's the Alice Alice goes up to the cops and hands them a Pepsi and then they're like oh sh- well everything can be okay now yeah yeah that's yeah I, I I would I would agree mostly but I would I would kind of add one thing I don't think there is a twist I think the way they behave is completely in keeping oh yeah, yeah. with with how the liberal middle classes always behave when their own interests are threatened. Yes, um, absolutely. If anything, that kind of initial first conflict remi- is like, historically, you can track that onto, like, these old school vampires are like feudal aristocracy. And so, like, what happened when when 
mercantile capitalism, capitalism as we would recognize it, was beginning to emerge. You saw the emergence of the the Collins. You saw the emergence of a, of a kind of newly uh, wealthy uh, middle classes. And so there was there was a threat of class interests, and they did what they were always going to do, which is reach a settlement, uh, protect their own interests, and throw the people who actually suffer the depredations of capitalism under the bus. So, like, I I never I was ne- I was not surprised because I never expected any other outcome based on based on these these vampire equivalents of Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> 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 That was a low blow. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd go necessarily that far because Pete is like Pete would be Pete would be the Volturi, you know. Pete Pete would be fixing blood prices. Like like Pete would one hundred percent be like on on board with the ideological mission and not just on for the ride, you know. I would I would draw that mild bit of relatively pointless <laughs> distinction. <laughs> but no, I I, th- I think you're completely right. I think I think what we kind of see with the end of the political conflict with the Cullens and the Volturi is is the Cullens realizing that they have a very comfortable position. Yeah, of course. And and that conflict will not make their position better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Like like it's not they're 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 like suburban car dealership owners, right? They're benefiting from this exploitation. And they're benefiting from from these uneven power dynamics and smoothing those out. It's not good for them, even though it would probably be really good for the super broad coalition of you know powerful vampires they've brought yeah. together. Okay, so maybe the vampire equivalent of like Joe Biden. <laughs> oh yeah, sure, I'll go for that. Yeah, or like Warren, because like they are trying Ooh, to be like oh, okay. like yeah. do do gooders, you know? Because yeah, like Car- Carlisle's like I'm dedicating my life to helping people. Oh, like I, that you know, is like so there's good. yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So I think I think it's more of a Warren, but I think this that's also where kind of like the heteronormativity and the like I guess religious themes come in because um, you know we're kind of made to feel like well like family is everything and also like these people have their like forever mates right and you're you're um immortal so you're you know so the idea of like carlisle dying and then everyone having to like live forever and like uh esme having to like go on forever like without her mate is just like oh that well that would be too unbearable like that can't happen you mm-hmm. know what i mean um so of course we we have to back down if we're going to lose anyone right um i think that all kind of like ties into obviously why it was so i mean i knew they obviously weren't gonna do it either but like oh yeah um but why it was so obvious that they wouldn't yeah but definitely definitely i think that that's this all this all ties in together but um do we do we have any other thoughts on like religion uh in regard to the twilight universe besides like the uh kind of the obvious critiques that have already been put out there that this is like just a deep reflection of stephanie meyer's uh conservative religious ideology I, yeah, I think it's really interesting because we talk a lot on the show about um, understanding the world as something more than just being like strictly material, um, however however you want to yeah. frame that. But I, I genuinely like there's some interesting like research that suggests you could use Twilight to make an argument for a religion without God or, you know, you don't like they oh, have yeah. a lot of debates about uh, the existence of the soul. Um, and whether and whether they have souls, uh, and I think, I think uh, maybe more so in the books, but maybe in the films as well, they come down on the side of no, and they don't, and that doesn't really matter. 
because yeah. <laughs> be- because because they're immortal. They're always going to be rich. They're always going to be young. They're always going to be beautiful. They're like everything's always going to be perfect. You know, they're perfect forever as the book uh, as the books end. And I think there's something it like uh, there's a there's a book called True Religion by Graham Ward where he talks about the fact that like modernity has kind of dissolved the idea of transcendence that you got from traditional religious forms, and it's this kind of cheap thrill rather than being anything that's actually pointing beyond the realities of our day to day existence. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. So you don't actually have any kind of like actual transcending of, of of materialism or like consumption which is what the vampire is all you do is you just stretch that out forever and if that's a religion that's a very capitalist view of what religion or, or if that that has a religious aspect that's a very capitalist view on what religion is and can be yeah 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 i would completely agree with that oh uh, yeah i think i think like that that, that kind of sums up um I, I always thought that was one of the most eerie parts of twilight is that edward is so focused on the nature of the soul and his relationship to his own faith, but it's also totally absent from the text. Edward might as well not have any religion whatsoever because outside of it being the reason why he wants to marry Bella first and a couple other very vague things, like he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't really like do anything religious in any of the films, right? Like we don't see him deeply engaged with the nuance and complexity of a spiritual life, you know? It's just it's just a dog and pony show for oppression. And he doesn't even really frame his his wanting to marry Bella as coming from a, a religious place. He frames it as like, oh, I'm just from a different era. And and like back then things were different and court, courtship was simpler. And like, you know, it was just steeped in the patriarchy. And so this this is how things should go, because these were the values I was kind of instilled with in that era. Um, but he really makes no mention of like, oh, because of my religious beliefs. But then also he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm protecting the sanctity of your soul. And she's like, I don't even I don't care about my soul. I don't believe in my soul. Yeah. Like, stop it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if there is a kind of religion here, it's like uh, it's it's culturally Christian conservative. That's the only kind of religion that there is here, which so it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters that you kind of abide by the rules of cultural Christian conservatism. Like you watch Fox, Fox News, you don't have sex before you get married, uh, you uh, go to ch- like so it like what he actually believes doesn't matter as long as he kind of says, oh, you know, I'm just an old fashioned guy. So I guess we're going to have to get married first. And it doesn't even it doesn't even matter that you do those things, right? Like, look at all of the conservative pundits right now who are rebranding themselves as like trad cats. Yeah, yeah. Like, 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 I think Lauren Southern was the most recent one to like turn her whole life around and find find God and start to do to the trad cat Instagram thing. And it's really? just a grift. Yeah, yeah. it, oh it has nothing to do with her person, her history, her beliefs, uh, like her life at all. It just has to do with how you present. And I think that's kind of historically been the nature of this aspect of oppression, right? You know, like behind closed doors, like all of these people are on the flight logs. All of these people (laughs) are monsters. Like they're guilty of crimes on a scale that humans can barely imagine. That that doesn't comport at all to their professed beliefs and values and the values of the heartland and a simple America where the everyman can raise themselves up as long as they believe in God and family. Like, mm-hmm. like it has like that. That's that's for us. That's for us working class poor dopes. 
right? They get to do whatever they want. And I think that that's part of Edward's uh, terrible religious landscape. Yeah, well, it's also like they get to do whatever they want only because like as long as you're following xyz steps then you're good right so whatever who cares about souls or god or whatever but as long as i'm following the the rules like as long as i'm following the steps of like okay first comes love then comes marriage then comes whatever Um, a psychic vampire fetus in love with a teenage (laughs) werewolf and a baby Right, yeah. It's it's more just kind of like about obedience to rules for, for no real reason, right? That doesn't even have to be a reason. It's just something that you do, right? Yeah, and I think that for all for all of like the uh, uh, raking over the coals we gave Jacob's relationship to like the whole alpha male identity thing, I think it is refreshing that like at least there's one character in this franchise whose identity is kind of based around defying... Uh, the the kind of like norms and rules he should be following and trying to figure out his own path even though his own path winds up being pretty terrible especially because he's defying the the kind of like alpha male crap where it's like we all must obey it there's a lot of obeying going on in this in this film right (laughs) it's all about like learning to obey and like you must obey the alpha and and whatever um but yeah, I mean, it's good that he's pushing back against that. Um, but he's also just doing it for his own selfish reasons because, like, yes. he wants to get the girl. It's not like he's doing it because he believes in like liberation for the pack or anything. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. He's not. He's not interested. Because, and then even like when <laughs> Seth and and like every, all some other wolves are like, "Hey, we want to follow you because we like you better." He's like, "No, go away." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, carry, I carry no responsibility for my actions. Right. But I, I think that. Um, this might be this might be a good pivot point uh, since we're back to talking about wolves to talk about kind of like animal liberation uh, in the text of Twilight and like uh, I would be remiss to not touch on this with uh, the host of Vegan Vanguard on the show, <laughs> yeah. especially because like so much of Twilight is pivoted around that like classic line of like oh we're like your vegetarians because we only eat animals. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like oof. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was like. You know, uh, I really hated the part uh, where I think it's in the first film and yeah, Edward is explaining this and he's like, yeah, you know, we're like you're vegetarians uh, and they're just he's just like, uh, yeah, it's like people who subsist on tofu, oh, yeah. you know, um, you can survive or I don't know what the exact line is or whatever. Like, you, you, yeah, something like you can survive, but you're never satisfied. Yeah, yeah. Right, you're never quite satisfied. And I was like, oh, fuck you, Edward. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> it's like, fuck off right now. Um, but yeah, I always found that interesting, how it was always framed like, you know, I'm a killer, Bella. Um, and it's like, she's like, doesn't matter. Like, I'm in love with you. Um, but like, <laughs> it's only framed as like, oh, I'm a killer if I'm killing like a human, right? And then, of course, there's, uh, as we kind of talked about earlier, kind of the connections between... Um, like animality and the way that the the indigenous tribe is treated um so there is that kind of uh hierarchy that af talks about where kind of um like the at the top of the hierarchy is the like white able-bodied cis man um which is really embodied bodied by the collins and then kind of like going down from there uh you have people who are uh more animalized uh, and then kind of more uh, oppressor looked down upon. And then you have like actual animals who are, uh, you know, considered 
fine to kill and eat um but i mean like in the vampire world it's like well i guess where else are you gonna get the blood but then it's like well carlisle is i guess you could well i guess you don't want to use all of the donated blood that people give to just feed vampires (laughs) 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 so uh i guess you probably wouldn't do that so you know like that that makes sense um but yeah, I just I just find that kind of interesting. And then yeah, you were talking about kind of like the the wolf metaphor and how that's that's completely wrong, right? And completely misrepresents like what how wolves function and like how that's uh, like kind of maps onto the the toxic masculinities in the film and stuff. So I thought I think there's like a lot of interesting connections. I don't know. I'm interested to hear what what you guys think about it. Yeah, definitely. I think um I think there are a lot of really interesting things when it comes to animals in this text. And, and right, like the, the, the like, because like Carlisle uses blood bags to feed Bella later on. And like, uh, you know, this, this begs, the, this begs the question as this begs the question in most vampire texts. And that's like, except for true blood, which actually had, had the, the moxie to go there. But like, you know, in Twilight, we have the problem where like, Carlisle could easily just like set up a company where he pays people for blood and then he just embezzles some on the side. You know, like we, we live in a world where like you, you already have a lot of people who are like, you know, economically totally screwed over selling their blood and selling their plasma and selling their other vital fluids. And like, you know, you, you have this weird tension where they like they hunt and they hunt animals when like actually there's probably a much more ethical way to source human blood. Because we find out that the animals they hunt are cougars and bears and like, yeah, they, they hunt animals who are like on the verge of extinction. These animals have already been pressed out by human society. It's not like the colons are going around and sucking down rats, you know, that are dime a dozen. They're they're going yeah. after animals that are already on the periphery. And the the text of the films adds this absolutely messed up moral layer to that, right? Like we come to find out that when Edward was first turned. Um, he couldn't do the whole animal diet, you know, uh, he, he couldn't control his thirst. So he started hunting, uh, men who were going to be murderers and rapists, right? Like that's, that, that was kind of his shtick for a while is he was using his psychic powers to, to stop men from committing violent crimes by, mm-hmm. by feeding off of them and killing them. Um, and then we get that paralleled with Bella's first kill as a vampire when she's, she's hunting this deer, Right, and then she gets the deer into clearing, and you see her, and she sees the deer, and she's totally going to go for it. But then, like this cougar jumps and tries mm-hmm. to get the deer, and she goes and kills the cougar instead. Mm-hmm. And then that that applies this really twisted moral logic that that for some reason a cougar yes. who who lacks the critical capacity to analyze its agential relationship to the deer is the villain in the relationship with the deer. Yes, it it, it 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 anthropomorphizes these creatures in the worst way possible and attempts to apply already weird and complicated human moral systems to the animal world, mm-hmm. and then and then makes Bella out to be an extra good guy because she murdered one of what must be very few cougars in this range, uh, uh, because it was gonna hurt poor little Bambi. Like it's just like mm-hmm. the most messed up stuff. Yeah, I I meant to to bring up the fact that they only tend to kill predators, which like first of all, this is another reason why it's like yeah, indigenous people obviously did not write this text because like you don't just like kill all of the the apex predators in an ecosystem and then think that that's going to be sustainable at all. So, yeah, that just didn't make sense on the face of it, but yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I completely forgot about that kind of twisted like, oh, we kill the predators because, you know, we're we're being good people, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Any um, I guess I guess uh, Maxi, any other closing thoughts before we before we bid farewell to the Twilight franchise? Oh my goodness. Um. No, I I don't know. There, <laughs> if, if I started with any thoughts, it would just kind of spiral into a whole True, other hour yeah. of conversation. So, um, oh my just God, otherwise, no. <laughs> you know, yeah, just just thank you for this amazing opportunity to to talk about these films. I've I was I've been a closeted fan for for a while now, um, and like I said, I I was too embarrassed to even watch these films, but now I, I'm just so thrilled to be able to come out. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about them and and build this twilight discourse so thank you for the opportunity you you are welcome in a more perfect world we could all uh step into the sunlight and uh glitter with each other i i think <laughs> yes. is one of the big takeaways um it is. yeah and i think if i if i want if i had anything serious to say as a final note and that's like something we say on the show a lot and that's like you know we're we're here to leave no stone unturned we're here to leave no uh spooky piece of cinema uninterpreted from a left point of view because there's 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 something to be gained uh uh, no matter where we travel there's something to be gained no matter what text we encounter there there are ways we can find even if it's a text like twilight and and in some respects we're grasping uh uh, at some very tenuous uh bits of bits and pieces (laughs) But there, there are there are messages that we can find that are useful for the left, even um, at the very least, if it's just a warning about what happens if kind of neoliberal late capitalism keeps a pace. Yes. Uh, so, so even though like it's been it's a bit silly that we just did a two part episode on Twilight, I nevertheless think that this kind of work is important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I'm like 100 percent here for the tenuous grasping. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>Wow, we you know, I think this is almost poetic in a way that you, that you and I have survived yes. to the end. <laughs> Of the Twilight. <laughs> Where we, we've been on this sinking discourse ship for months now, and it's you and yes. I on the bow of the Titanic as it goes down. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I've loved this conversation. This has been great. <laughs>